Well, welcome. Um, if, I, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here uh, leading our Beaverton plant this fall. And it's uh, great to be with you this morning. Uh, I'd love to get to know you if I, if I haven't yet. Um, we are uh, we're so glad that you're here this morning. You had a number of options this sun- Sunday morning, and you're here. So hats off to you for doing that. Um, I think... Uh, I think that will be a good thing as we engage God in his scriptures this morning. Um, we are going through the book of Psalms, and uh, we're calling this series Giving Voice to Our Souls, uh, because what we have in the Psalms is the Bible's prayer book. And in this prayer book, we have 150 Hebrew poems that express, in a very unfiltered way, the full range of the human experience, from lament Right? describing what's broken and wrong in the world, to praise, thanking God for putting it back together again. And so uh, as we engage the Psalms, uh, we find uh, mankind's words to God right, that have become now God's word back to mankind. And it's this fascinating book. And last week we explored finding a voice of confidence in the midst of anxious times. And this week we're going to go to the opposite end of the spectrum and look at voicing our doubt, actually, and how the Psalms help us give voice to our our doubt. Uh, There's amazing realism in the Psalms. There's no high-minded, religious, idealistic, hallmark language. It's earthy, it's real, it's unfiltered, and, and here we have someone's doubting words to God becoming God's word to doubting people. So if you have a Bible, open it to Psalm 73, or follow along on the screen, that's also fine. But uh, Psalm 73 uh, begins book three of the Psalms. Uh, Book two has just ended with a triumphant Psalm, Psalm 72, blessing the king, looking forward to the just, righteous reign of a messianic king. And now we turn the corner into book three, where we kind of sink down into an exploration of lament and exile and things aren't the way they're meant to be. And so uh, Asaph, or Asaph, begins uh, this section of Psalms, and he authors Psalm 73. He is a religious leader, probably a priest in Israel, one of David's musicians. And uh, one of the things that we find in his honest description of his experience of doubt is consistent with the rest of the Psalms, where on one hand, we, we, we don't find any avoidance of emotion. He, he doesn't avoid or suppress emotions, like often happens in religious circles, nor does he give his emotions the final word. Right? It's not just mere ex- self-expression. What we find is someone praying their way through their feelings. They're actually talking to God about what's going on, not just talking about God. And so this is what we find in the Psalms. So let's take a look at this experience of doubt um, through the lens of Asaph or Asaph. Psalm of Asaph, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So Asaph begins with a confident assertion of good theology, right? He makes his claim, the core claim of the Bible, God is good and he's good to his people. But then he kind of says, not so fast. I don't actually know if I can buy this. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
And so Asaf begins with this correct statement, God's good to Israel, to those who appear in heart. But then he gets really real, unmasks any uh, facade and says, as for me, I almost lost my footing. I, I almost slipped. I don't know that I could buy it. And the metaphors he uses uses for I don't know if I can buy it are the metaphors of slipping and losing a foothold. Like, what, what kind of imagery is this? This is the imagery of a, a climb, right? I don't know if you've done much climbing. Um, you can tell by my physique that I don't do a ton of climbing, but I've done some climbing, right? Where you are looking for a place to put your hands and your feet that's sturdy, right? That's, you're, you're, the rocks aren't going to fall out from underneath you. And what he's describing is this spiritual journey that's like climbing a steep rock face. It takes effort and intentionality, and you're putting your weight, you're trusting in something. And he says, I came to a point where I almost slipped. I didn't, but I almost did. It's provocative imagery, isn't it, for what doubt is? The word doubt is never in this psalm. And so instead of giving a label to doubt, he describes doubt from the inside. And he says it's like slipping, it's like losing a foothold. Um, the metaphor tells us that doubt is a spiritual form of dizziness or vertigo. That's really what it's like. Where your senses are giving you something that your mind is not able to process. Where your heart's telling you something that your mind isn't processing. Where your senses are saying, this is how things are, but it's contradictory to something else. Right? Your eye gives you something that your brain and your heart can't process, and so you put your foot into a place that it shouldn't go. A soft imagery tells us how doubt works that way. So three things I want to show you about the experience of doubt, and we'll look at how he comes through the other side of it. So first, let's look at the experience of doubt from Asaf's perspective. The first thing that we can learn about doubt and the experience of doubt is that it can happen to anyone. Uh, I don't know if you're kind of a spiritual resume keeper, like, here are all the things that make me a particularly awesome Christian. Um, I would say it's probably not a good habit to start, um, and maybe one to quit, But as I look at my resume, I go, well, I'm just not an author of scripture, and this guy is, right? He beats us all, right? Like, this is somebody who has authored God's word. So if it can happen to us off, right, somebody who is a religious leader in Israel and also somebody through whom God has elected to author scripture, um, then I'm saying it can happen to any of us. And if it can happen to any of us, then we have to look at doubt with a certain lens, right? That it's actually a part of the journey with God. That it's a part of God's economy. Something God's not threatened by. Something that he's not put off by. In fact, um, if we look at doubt as if it's somehow uh, only for those of us who are weak or uninformed or lack maturity, then we're always going to be self-deceptive when doubts arise in our hearts, right? We're not actually going to have the courage to engage it because we'll see it as a threat to our sense of identity or security. And what I want to say to you is it can happen to everyone. And if it can happen to anyone, then we have to learn how to face it when it happens. Are you with me? Okay. So the next thing that we see about the experience of doubt is what it consists of, all right? Um, When you experience vertigo... You're not able to make sense of what's going on. You're not processing it. And so doubt is similar. He's able, not able to process. Uh, he doesn't have categories 
for what it is that he's seeing. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says that we walk by faith, not the seeming appearance of things. Right? We walk by faith, not by sight. So sight is actually the opposite of faith, not reason. Right? Faith has reason. It's reasonable. But sight is the opposite of faith. And so what happens is we see something that throws us off. Right? And what Asaph or Asaph is describing is that the injustices of the world are in HD, but his faith assertion is a mere podcast, right? And it's not a fair fight, is it? This is not a fair fight, okay? And so this is what he says. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity. It's a word, shalom, right? It's peace, harmony, right? Things as they're meant to be. When I saw the shalom of the wicked. Right? Shalom is supposed to be God's gift to the pure in heart, not to the wicked. So he looks out and he sees injustice. He sees a world that's upside down. And then he begins to describe the people that have shalom or seem like they have shalom. He says in verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In other words, these are the people who look great. Like These are beautiful people. Uh, they, they don't have trouble. They're really pretty people. Uh, they don't have trouble as others do. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind, so they're like a class unto themselves and of their own. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Right? They have no regard for the poor, um, They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They're prideful, they're boastful. And they say, uh, how can God know, verse 11? Is there knowledge in the Most High? In other words, they think that the rules don't apply to them. right? And they think that God is irrelevant to their lives. This sounds familiar, right? The prosperity of people who have no regard for God, who have no regard for the weak or the marginalized or the people who are in need, who are boastful, and life looks like it goes perfectly for them. Maybe you follow them on Instagram. Maybe you read about them in magazines, and you yearn for that life as the good life. And the psalmist is saying it's actually this juxtaposition between people who live in um, opposition to God's ways who have what seems like God's gift, and it's throwing me. And he gets to this place where it's affecting him so deeply that he says in verse 13, all in vain I have kept my heart clean. I've kept my nose clean for nothing. That's what he's saying, right? Like I've, I've performed for you, God, and I don't have what they have. This is messed up. You see it? You ever felt that way? Yeah. And so he says... Um, it's been in vain that I've kept my, hands, my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. In other words, they have it so good, and I don't. And so what he's describing is a life experience. When he pours into the doubts he has, he's not describing an intellectual dilemma. And so often we think of doubt as primarily an intellectual issue. Hey, there's this claim, and there's this counterclaim, and there's evidence for this one, and no evidence for this one or whatever, right? That's ten, that tends to be how we think about doubt. But he's telling you, let, let me tell you how doubt really works. 
It comes when we look at life and we experience things that throw us off. We experience things that don't seem to add up to the faith claims that we have. And so the first thing is that doubts can happen to anyone. The second thing is that doubts come from our experience. And so when doubts arise, we actually have to start looking at what are the things that are happening in my life and what is it that I've been absorbing that's throwing me off? Are you with me? You see how it comes out of life experience. And it's jarring for him. It's throwing him off. And it's incredibly unpleasant for him. But just because it's unpleasant doesn't mean it's all bad. I would say the third thing that we would see from this experience of doubt is that um, not only can it happen to anyone, not only does it come from experience, but it also creates opportunity for growth. It creates opportunity for growth. Would we have Psalm 73 if it weren't for an experience of doubt? No. Like we're, we're a chapter short on the canon, right, if we don't have an experience of doubt. We're missing something that God says is part of his word that is breathed of heaven, right? like it's inspired. And so this crisis of doubt comes from his life circumstances and it throws him off, but it also has potential. And we'll see in this psalm that it's actually doubt that brings him to a place of faith and intimacy. We'll get there in a minute. But for me, for my own story, uh, it was my freshman year of Bible college, right, where I was off to go find all the answers at like 19 um, so that I could, you know, dispense loads of wisdom to other teenagers years behind me, right? Well, it was that first semester that threw me because I went in thinking we'd get certainty and what I got was deconstructed certainty. I, I got like wrecked. And I remember calling my dad and going, because um, he's footing the bill, going, I don't know if I'm buying it. Like, I don't know anymore. Like, it seems like there's a good chance all of this is actually baloney. Like, I, I, I think that has to be a possibility. Right? This was absolutely necessary, it was positive, and it produced growth in my life. I had to deconstruct so that I can end up with faith rather than just answers. You you see the difference? And so there are some circles where these questions and experiences of doubt are looked at with suspicion. They're put down and they're just say, you know, just believe. Just, you know, like pull up your bootsteps and just believe. Get over it. Chill out, right? And uh, those those are not helpful solutions to doubt, Right? Uh, and the reason people react like that is because they're afraid of doubt, right? The doubt and question actually surfaces a lack of confidence and lack of faith within their own hearts. Right? And so there's no room for you all to doubt. I'm so grateful that on that phone call with my dad when he's footing the bill for a college that's about training in ministry and theology, and I'm going, I don't know if I'm buying it, he's going, okay, okay. You'd, you'd, that's all right. That sounds normal. I'll pray for you and let me know if you need anything. <laughs> oh, like there was space all of a sudden. There was permission to go just figure it out. It's interesting um, because growth comes from pain. My kids are 
have all kind of uh, gotten to be like in the 90th percentile of height or whatever. They're just like these tall kids. And um, that doesn't come without like waking up in the middle of the night moaning in pain, right? Those growing pains. And they're like, oh, I'm in agony. My shins are like killing me. Well, it's because they're getting bigger, right? And it's a good thing. Like their, per- their perspective is changing as they get taller, right? And uh, uh, no knocks on anybody that's shorter, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> but what if, what if the same answers always satisfied you? That, that you never, that, that no new questions ever surfaced in your life. That you were always satisfied with the exact same answers. What would that say? You've never moved. You've never grown, right? So new questions come as a result of growth, which comes as a result of challenge. And this is good. It's interesting to me that in the Gospel of John, uh, you have probably one of the loftiest claims about the identity of Jesus. Um, It's at the very end where someone says, my Lord and my God, right? confessing the identity of Jesus. He is my master and God. That's, that's the highest, most lofty claim you get in all four Gospels from the mouth of a disciple. And it comes from the greatest skeptic, right? The guy who moments before, right, was just chucking the eyewitness testimony of his friends. They said, Jesus is alive, and he's going, no way. That's too good to be true, like, I got to put my hands in his side and in the nail marks. Like, I got to see that myself. He's a skeptic. And he gets kind of labeled poorly, I think. I think he's, he's intellectually honest. And he's just trying to sort it out. And he's going, I just don't know that I can buy it. And it's out of the mouth of the biggest doubter in the Gospel of John that you get the most lofty claim about the identity of Jesus. It's through doubt, right, that leads to this beautiful expression of who Jesus really is. There's this, um, there's this uh, German poet, um, uh, his, I think you pronounce his last name, Rilke, uh, and he has this book called Letters to a Young Poet. I love this quote. It's one of the most famous quotes in his book, and he's talking about living into the question, seeing the opportunity that comes with doubts and questions. He says this, uh, I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as I can, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart. And try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. He says, don't search for the answers which could not be given now, but uh, you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now, and perhaps then someday, far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. I think we should look for answers, but the heart of what he's saying is appropriate, right? Be patient with what's unresolved and live into the answer. Um, And so what this means for us as God's people is we see that doubts can happen to anyone, and it comes out of life experience, and it's something that creates an opportunity for us to grow, to live into the answers. That's the experience of doubt. And it means that it forces us to move towards our doubts rather than uh, scurry away from them. They're not sub-spiritual. They don't make us a bad Christian. But it's actually, uh, you're on the edge of growth. And so what do we learn then about the solution? Like how do we actually work through our doubts? How do we 
uh, move through them to the other side. Well, Asaph makes four very important moves. Um, you'd be incomplete if you lacked any one of these four. This is, this is what he does in the psalm. We see it uh, lived out for us. The first thing he does, verse 3, he actually doubts his doubts. This is huge. Like he, he has these doubts, but, then, but he's doubting his doubts. If you look at verse 3, it's actually like a confession. He says, as for me, I was envious of the wicked. Like he's getting it out there. He's saying, I almost slipped. That's the experience of doubt. I had the spiritual vertigo. And I'm telling you where it came out of. It came out of envy. Right? He's saying, when I looked and I saw the prosperity and the shalom of the wicked, the doubts arose in my heart, and actually they came as a result of just wanting what somebody else had already gotten. That's where it came from, right? If he's, he's being honest about his doubts. He's doubting his doubts. He's deconstructing his doubts. It's so important for us as well to become skeptical of our own skepticism. Uh, and so he, he probes in and he says, you know, if I'm really honest about where my doubt's coming from, it's not about the innocent suffering and the justice of God. That's not the core issue. The core issue is I'm jealous, right? That's what he's saying here. He says it's not an intellectual issue. It's actually a character issue for me. And that's where the doubts are coming from. And, and sometimes it is an intellectual issue, but sometimes it's also... Sometimes it's a sin issue that we just haven't quite caught yet. We haven't seen it for what it is. And so often when we want to keep sin in the room, the easiest thing to do is to kick the judge out of the courtroom. I don't know that I believe in him anymore. Right? Like that's, that's actually the easiest thing to do if you don't want to have to deal with it. And so he says, I'm actually envious. It's not primarily about the intellect. It's primarily about my character. And so he's saying, look, I, I've kept my life clean and for nothing. But what he's really saying is, I, I didn't obey God because it was right or because I found it to be beautiful or worthy. I was obeying because I wanted him to hook me up. I wanted God's stuff more than I wanted God himself. And so he's unearthing the motives. That's the first move. You doubt your doubts. The second move is this. You actually have to uh, look at verse 15. He says, uh, Right? He's following up, all in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Right? And then he says in verse 15, if I had talked like that, if I had actually made that claim, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But then I thought how to understand this, and it seemed to me a worrisome task until, key word of the whole psalm, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Whose end? The, end, the wicked, right? The people who are prospering. He says, actually, when I went to church, I could see the end of those I was envying. That's what he does. His, his, his second move is he goes to church, or he, he enters the temple, if you will. So he goes to the temple. He sees the sacrifices being made. He sees uh, the crowds of pilgrims from around the land coming. They're offering sacrifice. They're praising. They're singing. There's Torah classes. It's a community of worship and learning and and he immerses himself in the community at the temple. He immerses himself in a community of faith and worship and learning. And that immersion into community brought this turn. It brought understanding to him. Hear this. We're never going to be able to work through our own perspective, our own singular perspective alone, in isolation. 
If we're going to work through our perspective, our doubt, or whatever it is that's hanging us up, we have to have other perspectives around us. We have to actually engage in a community. And and one of the things that happens here is we experience our way into doubt. We're not going to think our way out of it. Right? We experience our way through into doubt, and we experience our way through doubt into faith. And this is so important for us to immerse ourselves into a community that's actually learning and worshiping and living out faith. So that way you can actually see our faith lived out now in HD instead of just a podcast. It happens relationally with one another. So that's, that's the second move. We enter the temple. The third move is equally as critical. Um, verse 18. Right, he goes to church, right? He enters the temple. He gets with God's people. He immerses himself. He says, then I discerned their end. I could see where their story was going to end up. Verse 18, truly, now he's talking to God, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Think back to his spiritual vertigo. What did he experience? Almost slipping, right? But now he, he compares the footholds. And now he sees that it's the wicked who are in a slippery place. Right? He compares footholds. This is the third move. You have to compare the footholds. We live in a culture that thinks... that the the, uh, choice is between faith um, and reason. Belief versus unbelief. And it's a total farce. There is no neutral ground in the world. We always stand from a perspective of faith. We're trusting in some truth claim, one way or the other. And so when we compare footholds, what we're doing is I'm examining what I'm standing on, and I'm examining what I'm uh, the alternative. I'm looking at the footholds and I'm going, what is actually the superior belief? Right? The only question, only way you can question a belief is because you're actually standing on an alternative truth claim that you consider to be somehow more worthy. No neutral ground here. One of C.S. Lewis's friends is a guy named Sheldon Van Auken, and he wrote a book uh, called A Severe Mercy. And it's his own story and uh, and Part of it in, involves his conversion, his becoming a Christian. And what he describes is seeing this gap between what was possible and what was provable. Like, on one hand, this Christ being God thing, it's possible, but is it provable? And he wanted to close that gap. And so he realized, if I'm going to stake my life on Christ, I wanted to do it with proof and with certainty and no gap. And so he describes hanging about the edge of Christ and It was a position that before long, he realized that not only is there a gap ahead of him, but there's a gap behind him. He says that um, he might not be able to be certain that Christ is God, but he realized now that I'm no longer certain to be sure that he's not God. Do you see it? Like He compares footholds, and all of a sudden he realizes, I can't actually reject Jesus without a leap of faith. I have to make a leap of faith one way or the other goes back to what Luke shared a few weeks ago. Like, will you dare to follow Jesus? Like, will you accept his invitation to be daring enough to realize you're standing on faith on something? Will you stand your faith on him? And so when we're in a moment of doubt, ask, what is the other belief that I'm standing on that casts this one in doubt? Because it's always belief versus belief. 
It's interesting that we think that injustice and suffering is somehow a cause to disbelieve in God's goodness or in God's potency or his perfection. It's interesting because um, if injustice is a problem for a Christian, it's actually a bigger problem for somebody who's not. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga, a philosopher, says this. He says, most appalling kinds of human evil and wickedness are a problem for people who believe in God. But they're at least as big or bigger a problem for people who do not. Can we even speak of evil and wickedness apart from God? I don't see how. An atheistic worldview or an atheistic view of the world has not logical reason for moral obligation. The strong eating the weak is completely natural and therefore you have no foundation of saying it is evil or wicked. Therefore, if you think that there really is such a thing as good and evil that it is not simply an illusion, then you actually have a very powerful reason for believing in God. And so if injustice is outrageous to you, then you have to ask, where did I get that? I was out on a bike ride with a friend of mine who is a confessing agnostic, and we were walking through his issues of like faith, and he's like, it's cool for you, it's not cool for me. <laughs> okay, right, we've all heard this. And then he's like, my biggest problem is I don't know like, how to impart any moral framework to my kids. And I'm like, yeah, totally. And where did you get that from? Like, you know, and he just smirks and laughs. I know, right? Like, well, let's chase it down. Well, yeah, I'm open to them going to church. Okay, well, let's, but really, where is that coming from? Where is that coming from? So you have to doubt your doubts. You've got to enter the temple. You've got to compare footholds. And we also have to search for God's presence in his absence. And the psalmist here describes his experience of doing that. He says, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, right? When I was embattled with envy and entitlement, he said, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and I was ignorant and I was like a beast towards you. In other words, when I was embittered, I was acting like an animal. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? You see how his envy's been flipped upside down? Now he's describing his contentment because of the grace that's been shown him. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh, they may fail, but God is the, my, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's the reward. It's not his stuff. It's him. Right? For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. You see, it's doubt that took him from this place of saying God's good to Israel to now on the other side of doubt, he's at this place where he says it's actually good for me to be near you. It's gone from God's stuff to God's intimacy. That's where his process of doubt has led him. It's actually created growth for him. He says, I've made... The Lord God, my refuge, and I shall tell of all your works. And so we have to reach out for God's hand in doubt. And one of the things that hangs us up so regularly is I think that we're actually afraid that if we reach out to God, he's not going to want to pick us up. Like, what? Should I really make myself vulnerable to this God? Does he really care about me? Does he really love me? And so I think we hold our hands back because we're actually afraid he's not going to hold us. And here's what we see 
in the text. It says, I was acting like an animal. Nevertheless, I was continually with you. You you were there. And what are you doing when you're there, God? You held me by the right hand. In other words, I acted like an animal, but God, in your grace, you treated me like a son. I was acting like a beast. You treated me as a daughter, as a child. This is, this is the gospel. The gospel says, yeah, we act in our ignorance and unbelief. This is Ephesians, where Paul says That's, that darkens our hearts. But God, who is rich in mercy, and he has reached out his hand. And how has he reached out his hand? Through his son. And he hasn't just reached out his hand, he's outstretched his hands on the hardwood of the cross. They've been nailed for our redemption. And when you see that depiction of God reaching out for you, it eradicates the fear that says, oh, you won't hold me if I reach out for you. No, it says, I was reaching out to you before you ever wanted anything to do with me. And so we cast our doubts aside because our hearts are melted by his affection and his grace. And he says, I'll be present with you. And he, we have something that Asaph didn't have, right? He had an image of God and what he would do someday. But we have an image of God and what he has done already through his son Jesus. And we have the promise of his spirit, a seal, a down payment of what is to come, right? A seal of his permanent presence, permanent relationship with you, to hold you. And so Jesus has undergone the worst, most cosmic spiritual vertigo, utter God-forsakenness. Why have you forsaken me, he utters, so that we would never be forsaken. And that he believes perfectly through his vertigo on our behalf, so we and hang our faith on him. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for sending your son in our place and sending your spirit to be in us through faith. God, we thank you for this table you've prepared for us, the bread as the body of Christ nourishing us. The cup is the blood of Christ representing the forgiveness of sins. And we come to your table to be freeloaders today. To be the people who come to you and say, I I was acting like an animal, but you took me by the hand and you treated me as your child. And you are our good to be near you And so we come to you, to your table that you have prepared and we celebrate and we rejoice in what you offer freely, what we cannot earn, what we can only receive. In the name of Jesus we pray.